Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. I'm Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've not met you, I want to say thank you for being a part of our gathering this morning. And I come to you fresh off getting in at 1 o'clock in the morning with my smelly cat voice. So it's going to be a great morning. And none of you are Friends fans because none of you laughed. That's okay. You got it. Thank you. Thank you. One person um, got it. So no more of that joke. We'll put that on the shelf. If discipleship, as we saw last week, is living into the story of Jesus, then we must know, it is imperative that the church know, that story that Jesus is inviting us into, especially the role of the church within that story. So if I were to ask you this morning... If I were to say, what is the role of the church in the overall story of what God is doing in and for and through the world, how would you answer that? Because how you answer that is going to determine how you actually live, what you think you should actually be doing. And so what I want to do this morning is ask the question, What is Jesus inviting you into next as you follow him in the story? What is he inviting you into? Do you know what he's inviting you into and you're resisting? You know, like, I I feel like God is really calling me to do blank and you're just like, I don't want to do it. It's too much time. I'm too afraid. Or maybe you're just saying, I really don't know what God is inviting me into. I don't know what the next step is as we follow Jesus. Acts chapter 1, I think, is going to help us with both of these rubrics. The rubric of understanding the role of the church in the story of God. And begin to help us understand what we should be doing in our next steps. Because what I want to say is this, is that most of the time your next step is simple obedience. It's not sell your house and move to Africa. It might be that. Does that make sense? Like, But most of the time, the next step is just turning Netflix off and going to your neighbor's house and saying hello. Like, does that make sense? Like, most of the time it's very simple, but we're just not in tune with the Spirit to hear it. Acts chapter 1, a pretty famous verse. The disciples have been instructed by Jesus for 40 days about the kingdom of God. In verse 6, after 40 days, they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But this is what is for you. What's for you is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Father, as we unpack this verse this morning in some detail. I pray that you will, Spirit, meet with us, encourage us to take that next step in following you. So, Father, we need your Spirit, and so we pray that you'll send him to be with us, to teach us, embolden us, empower us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. One of the primary ways that you can explain the role of the church in this story of God is by this verse, and specifically by saying, we are witnesses. The role of the church is the role of a witness. And I want you to take note of a couple things. Number one, in this passage, Jesus is making a promise, not a command. Jesus is making a promise, not a command. What difference does that make? 
most of the time when Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is talked about and it says, you'll be my witnesses, what is the application? This is going to be a very dialogical sermon, okay? So what's most of the time the application that you hear about this passage, about going and being witnesses? Go. Go. And do what? And witness. Where? What did you say? To the ends of the earth. The beach. Um, Wherever. Wherever God is calling you. Portsmouth. He's calling everyone to Portsmouth, Joe said. Okay? The point is, is that most of the time we take this passage as Jesus commanding us to go do something. But if you read the passage very carefully, is Jesus actually making a command? He's actually making a promise. He promises that if they would wait, the Holy Spirit will come upon them, empower them, and make them into something. That he's going to actually make them become something. Implying that before the Spirit of God comes, they are not witnesses. And when the Spirit of God comes upon them, now they're going to be transformed into something new. Something the Spirit is doing in and through them. And it is the role of becoming witnesses. And we would say that this is an identity marker of the church. An identity marker of the church is that they are witnesses. An identity is something, as Nate mentioned just a few minutes ago, is something inherently necessary for us to think about as a church and as individuals. Your identity is massively important. It is so important that whether you know it or not, you are all looking for an identity. You're all looking for something to say that my life is worth living because I am blank. We all deeply desire to know who we are. We can't live without an identity. So, you know, just give my story once again. All right, who was Scott? Scott was a soccer player. Okay, and when Scott got too old, who was Scott? He was the theologian. And in both of those realms, soccer and theology, people would come up to me and be like, wow, you're really good. You're, you know a lot. And what would that do? That would like make my head really big. And then I'd want my head to get even bigger. So I would do what? Practice more and read more so that I could build my identity that I'm the better soccer player than everyone I've ever met. And I knew more than anyone. If there's anyone in the classroom who knew more than me, it was annoying. You know, like that was just me. And so my identity determined how I live. And those are obviously very wrong identities. They're very arrogant identities. They're something that you will always find people who are way better than you in both of those things. But the point is, is that we are all, whether we're not even looking for it, whether we're like searching after God and like going to seminary, building identities, things that make us feel significant. What is it that you are building your identity on? Most of the time, the identity that we are trying to earn, trying to find, is depending on my achievements. The identities that we desire are built on what we do. And what is the problem when you build your identity on something you do? When you no longer can do that, when you no longer live up to the standard that you have set, you now have lost your identity. You have lost your ability to actually find meaning and significance in this life. And so many of us seek to build an identity. Or for others of us, our identity comes from what we feel, how we're feeling that day, what we feel like doing, what we feel like with all of our ideas about life in this world, and we feel a certain way, and so our identity is built on feelings. And if you've been around Redemption Church, we don't poo-poo feelings. We have to deal with our feelings. We have to deal with our emotions, but our emotions are not always trustworthy. They're not always telling the truth about who we are. And what Jesus is promising is that he can actually give you an identity that something is not dependent upon you. He can give you an identity that's something that you are not going to achieve. 
He's going to give you an identity that will give you meaning and satisfaction that can never be taken away from you, no matter how you feel. That is unbelievable. To actually have an identity that says, I am this, I can never be taken away from this, I will always be this, and it will always give me joy and deep satisfaction, even though it may not always produce happiness. Church, if the Spirit of God is upon you, you are a witness. This is who you are. And I know some of you are going to say, I know I'm that, but I'm not doing a great job. Any of you feel like that? And you know why? It's because once again, you're trying to achieve your identity rather than just receive it. You are a witness. And it's not dependent upon you about your witness. You know, I don't know if you ever, I grew up in a, kind of like a youth group church. And there's always, you know, the youth pastor who would like turn off all the lights and have the little dim lamp on and he'd just turn the lamp on a little bit and just the little tiniest light in the room would actually be able you could see everything i don't know if you ever ever use that illustration or not i can remember um also the the scariest place i've ever been in my life is in a cavern in colorado i guess there's three places in the world where you can experience complete and total darkness one's on the bottom of the ocean one is in a black hole and the third one is in a cavern and they shut all the lights off and it was the freakiest thing in the world. And just having your flashlight, or sorry, on your phone, like just turning your phone on, or having your watch beep was like, whoa. Okay, you know what? You may not be doing great right now. You may be struggling a lot of sins. You may be really lazy. You may not be doing everything you know you should be doing, but you know what you are? You're still a little iWatch light in the world because you have the Spirit. The Spirit is empowering you. This is who you are. And Jesus is making you a promise this morning that if you have the Spirit, you have been transformed into a witness. We're witnesses. But what does that mean? The second thing I want to see is that Jesus did not make up this concept of witness. Jesus was not thinking, man, I'm going up to the Father in about six minutes, and before I go, i got to come up with a really cool like, metaphor and picture for them to understand what they're going to be. It's just like last week when I talked about Jesus making us fishers of men. He wasn't just necessarily being funny or pithy or punny. and be like, oh, you're a fisher? I'll make you a fisher of men. Oh, you're a doctor? I'll make you a healer of souls. No, he wasn't doing that. He's actually drawing from the story of God. This term witness is deeply rooted in the story of Israel. But again, not to be like mean because I'm in the same boat as you are. We don't know the story of Israel. So when we read passages like this, we just import our own understanding of what witness is. And the church has told us for a thousand years that witness, not a thousand years, 250 years, that witnessing is taking your tract and leaving it in the bathroom, <clears throat> or taking your tract and handing it to people. And I'm all, I'm not, in a sense, I'm not against that. But what is this idea of witness? Where does Jesus come up with it? Why does Jesus actually even use it? And one of the passages in the Old Testament in the story of Israel that we find this is in Isaiah chapter 43. I'll have these passages on the screen. But I'm using this passage in Isaiah chapter 43 because in chapter 43, God is talking about a future day when he's going to bring all of his people out of bondage, and he's actually going to do a new exodus. And you're like, a new exodus. I know all of you who were here last week, and by the way, thank you for not being sick or on vacation like the other half of our church, okay, including my parents and my own family, all right? But my point is, is that Last week, I know all of you remember, Jesus was inviting his disciples into a story that was fishers of men. And you remember where the phrase fishers of men came from in the Old Testament? Jeremiah 16. And in Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah is talking about a future day when God is going to bring all of his people back. And he's going to do a new exodus, going to deliver his people from bondage and from tyranny, from all of the evil powers, especially the satanic ones. And what I'm trying to say is like, now we're in Isaiah talking about the same future events, a time where now this is going to see Isaiah speaking of a new exodus. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah records this. It says, do not fear 
because I'm with you. And I will bring your offspring from the east and the west, and I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I have formed, and who I have made. What is God doing? God is saying one day, because Israel's dispersed right now, one day he's going to bring all of his people from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and everyone who's been called by his name, everyone who has been made for his glory, is going to be gathered together. And in this process, God is going to bring everyone together, not just the Israelites, but now he's going to see in verses 7, 8, and 9, I don't have four, you can read it later, but he's going to bring even the nations to this place. And it's a picture of like a tribunal. It's like a picture of a courtroom where God is standing as the judge. And he has on one side of the courtroom all of the people from the north, south, east, and the west. <clears throat> and he has on the other side of the courtroom all the nations. And he says this, Nations, you say you're gods. Know the end from the beginning. You, nations, you say that your gods are more powerful than me. You say your nations are the true God. And he says to them, go ahead and bring forth your witnesses. Go ahead and bring forth your evidence that your gods are more powerful, more wise, more omniscient, more all-knowing than I am. He invites them, bring it forward. Bring forth your witnesses. And then Jesus, I shouldn't say Jesus yet. Then Yahweh says in verse 10, looking to the other side of the courtroom, to Israel, he says this, Israel, you are my witnesses. Nations, Israel. I didn't do that. That's just, I'm just kidding. I'm just making a point. Okay. If you didn't catch that, that's fine. Before, listen to what he says, you're my witnesses and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. I am he, and there is none who can deliver from my hands. I work and who can turn it back? What is Yahweh saying about the nation of Israel? How are all the nations going to come to know that the God of Israel is the one who knows the end from the beginning, the one who acts, and no one can actually go against what he's doing? How are the nations going to know that God alone is the God of the world? Through his people. Israel, one day you will be the people who will actually show the world who I really am. And sure, Isaiah is promising that Israel is going to be regathered, and through their life together, they're going to actually witness in their life together the great God of Israel over against all the other gods of the earth. So what is Jesus saying in Acts chapter 1? If we take all of that information, and Jesus now says in Acts chapter 1, potentially to the 12, but more likely the 70, who are there before he ascends, and he says to these group of people, you are my witnesses. If you were Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the crew, what would you be thinking? I think what they'd be thinking is what Isaiah 43 was promising is now being fulfilled in Peter, James, and John in the 70. And what is being fulfilled is that now you are going to go and become something. You're going to actually be transformed into this witness. You are going to actually show the nations that God is the God of all gods. Which is why he says at the end of the verse, to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. 
God is doing something new in Acts chapter 1 by sending the Spirit and transforming his people into a witness. So what does that mean for discipleship? It means this, if we're going to follow Jesus and become who he has made us to be, witnesses, we need to understand that this is what our identity is wrapped up in being. Our identity, one that will never be taken away, one that will never, in a sense, bring... uh, What's the opposite of meaningful? Unmeaningful? Meaninglessness? It'll always be full of purpose. It'll bring joy. Is that we are wrapped up, our whole life is wrapped up in showing the supremacy of Jesus over all things. That is what our life is. That is who you are. So what does it mean for discipleship? Number one, you just have to understand who you are. We've been invited into a story that Jesus is fulfilling, and now he is transforming us and making us into this identity of witness. Number two, not only are we witnesses, but Acts chapter 1 tells us that we are witnesses together. The question I want to ask as we begin point two of being witnesses together, how are we going to show the nations the greatness of God? How are we going to actually display as our identity of witness that God is the God of all gods? Well, if you notice in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there's a repeated word, the most repeated word three times is the word you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, I'm just, you know, down south, we, we, you, we say, you say, y'all. Up north, we say you guys. What I'm getting at is that this word you is plural. There can be you or there can be you. The King James, there's ye and thee, <laughs> right? Like there's first person, singular you, or there can be a plural you. Guess what you is used every time in this passage? The plural. It is a group of people. They're made up of individuals. We're not getting rid of the individual. But what we're getting at is that there's a collective group of people who are going to be this. They're going to be collectively a witness together. Sure, you individually have been transformed by the Spirit into a witness. But you know what the church also is? It's a collective group of witness. Is a collective group together, which means you can't be a witness. You can't live out your identity all by yourself. You must be a part of a group of people. You must be a part of the church. And what I want to say is this, is that the way a church structures itself, the way it structures its life together matters. Nate and I have been talking about this recently, just how significant it is that the way we, and I'm not worried about, in a sense, not worried about other churches, but Nate and I have been asking, like, do we keep doing MCs? They're just, it'd be so much easier to just make everyone come on Wednesday night, have a youth group, and we can all go home. Of course, we say that. It wouldn't be easy. But it's just like trying to get people to understand what's happening and what they're doing and why they should be doing and having consistency. It's just sometimes just like, are you kidding me? And I see it in my own life, the inconsistency. But we come back to the statement that the way a church structures its life together matters for at least two reasons. Number one, it matters because the way the church structures itself inherently teaches the people what the nature of the church is. Okay, now, I'm not saying there's only one way to structure your church. Okay? But how does Redemption Church structure itself? We meet on Sunday morning, correct? And then what do we do? Seek to live together out in the world the rest of the week. 
Why do we do that? Because it's a new cool way to do church? It's actually not new or cool anymore. (laughs) It used to be. Why do we do that? We are the church. And it's teaching you that to be the church, you have to be the church where? Everywhere we go, together. Like we're trying to like just reinforce to you that the idea of being a witness together is not being a witness together. And there's nothing wrong inherently with this, but being in this room six times a week. If we built a structure, and I'm just talking about us, of coming here every week, we inherently become thinking what? That the life, without constant repetition, we'd be thinking that the life of the church happens in this room. Does the life of the church happen in this room? Yes, it does. But you know where else it happens? 166 hours out there. Because the way you structure a church inherently teaches people what we believe about the church. And we believe that the church is a group of people who have been gathered together by the Spirit, empowered and transformed to live their lives together. But number two, it matters because the witness of God is at stake. The witness of God is at stake. If we're angry with each other, or we don't forgive each other, how well does that show the world who Jesus is? And more importantly, in that future new world that's coming, what are relationships going to look like? Any guesses? There's easy answers. You could just say perfect. Perfect. They're going to be perfect. What's a perfect relationship? No arguing. How many of you want that in your household? How about in relationships? Just be, I mean, well, I'll just confess my sin. I know, like, just, she's not here and she'll never listen. I'm just kidding. But, like, just being newly married, there's a lot of insecurity in me. And that's in a relationship where we're married and there's like deep insecurity. How many of you feel that insecurity in your relationships and you're just like, ah, I hate that. And you try to cover it up with things. You try to find an identity to cover up that insecurity. The reality is, is that in that new world, there will be no insecurity. There's going to be perfect. There's going to be no arguing. So how do we show the world presently what that new world's going to look like? By developing relationships here that works through the fighting, that works through the being sinned against, that works through the forgiveness, that overcomes the insecurity through the good news of Jesus. That if we structured our church, everything right here, how many of you could obey the command, be kind to one another, if the only thing you ever did was meet Christians right here? I think any of you yelled at anyone here today yet? I, I doubt it. I haven't heard any screaming. We'd all look at you like, you're weird. Stop. Right? But where do you have to actually practice being kind? It's interesting. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul told the church to be kind to each other. The whole church, be kind to each other. And yet, in our day, I know in my own life, most of the time, the only people I have to practice to is not the church, but my own family. Immediate family. Why is that? Because those are the people I spend 99% of my time with. When there's like problems at Redemption Church and people are not getting along, I'm kind of like, ooh, this is exciting. There's actually meaningful relationships where people are actually getting to know each other, where they're starting to bug each other. And what that means is now all of a sudden we're going to have to practice what the new world is going to look like. And are we going to forgive? Are we going to overcome our pride? Are we going to be humble and receive each other and forgive each other? And in that relationship, in those friendships, we actually show the world what the new world is going to look like. We are witnessing together in our life out there. 
So structuring matters. And I want to ask the question, in the story of God, how did Israel structure its life together? I have on the screen for you a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is how Israel structured their life together. Just so we're clear, before they go into the promised land, Moses is giving a last speech. He does not get to go in because of his sin. And they're about to go in, and before they go in, here is what Moses records for the nation of Israel. He says, look, I now teach you these decrees and regulations as just as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy. So Moses is like, God gave me all these rules, 613 of them. I'm giving them to you, and you need, when you go in there, you need to obey them. And obey them completely. Why? Because then you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. Okay, stop. That's just crazy. That's just crazy. It's crazy talk. Here's why it's crazy talk. If I told you obey God completely today, what, and I would say, and this is the reason why, what would you say? Why should you obey God completely today? You would not say, I'm just and it's not that the answer you would have given per se would have been wrong. That's not the point. The point is that in this passage, the obedience is for what sake? The display of the wisdom and intelligence of God to who? The nations. In fact, when they hear these decrees, they're going to exclaim, how wise and prudent are the people of this nation. For what great nation as a God is near them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions I'm giving you today? Do you see what this is saying? You know why we obey? Because we give the right picture to the world of what the new world is going to look like of love for one another. We love each other. We love God by loving each other. The great commandments, if you will. And the way that we structure our life together in deep, meaningful relationships around Jesus and loving each other will actually display to our city how wise and loving God is. So what did the early church do? In Acts chapter 2, on the next slide and in the next chapter there's a passage from Acts chapter 2 and I'm going to make you do something I want you to get around a group of people and I want you to ask as you read through this passage ask yourself what did the early church do once the spirit of God had come upon them in the beginning of Acts 2 they were transformed into witnesses and I wrote at the bottom of this slide, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean is we don't have to do everything they did. It's just describing a life. It's not saying we're going to do every one of these 17 things. Yeah, it's like a template. It's like a, parrot, like a, like a pattern, not something we have to like go one-to-one -one on. Okay, so break up into some groups. I'm going to give you like three to five minutes and just start talking with each other. Uh, if you see someone you don't know next to you, this is a great chance to say hello and get to know them. And I'll leave this up here, and in about three minutes, I'm going to ask you what you found of how the early church, after they had been transformed into witnesses, structured their life together. Okay? So good. Go ahead and break up into groups and talk. And... <laughs> When you look at Acts chapter 2, and this is kind of a summary statement of Acts 1 and 2 together, it's kind of a summary statement, what, how, do you, what do you think they, how do you see their life being structured together? And there's, well, there are wrong answers. There are good answers where you just repeat statements up there. 
And then there's the best answers that kind of get at like a, a picture of not using those exact words. <laughs> like, yeah. Ge- generous spirit, yeah. And generous how? Mm-hmm. Generous with their money? Time? They live like a family? Is that what I heard someone say? Yeah. And how do we see that? Eating together in homes? Yep. Yep. Sacrifice. Yep. Unity. Unity. Do you know what Paul talks about in every letter he writes? Unity. You know what the primary mark of the church is to the witness of the world? Unity. Great. What else? Worship. Yeah. Yep. What else? The result of all this was what? (laughs) It's Sam. Yeah, good. Yeah. I, I just think we can't like live this way and just demand that God will do that. But it's interesting when they lived this way, God just kept bringing more and more people in. Something attractive about it. As Paul says in Corinthians, is the letter, this word church, we're like an aroma of death to some, but aroma of life to others. Yeah. So I visit this passage every other year. And as I was visiting this this week, two things stood out to me. <clears throat> And it's, and no one's hit on it. But that phrase, many wonders and signs. I'm not a charismaniac, but I think God wants, I think people in this church have gifts that need to be used. Supernatural gifts, as we call them. Things that the Spirit is still doing to actually build the witness, not just to do every Sunday, not just for the benefit of, no, for the fact that we need people to be who God has made them to be. Secondly, I like the idea of they met not only in homes, but in the temple courts. So does that mean we meet in homes and the church building? Say no. Good answer. What does that mean? What were the temple courts? General meeting place for the community. This is more than likely, like maybe you've heard of the agora in Greece, like the marketplace. The place where people were buying and selling and philosophers were teaching, and it was like the the main hub of the city. So they met in homes, all together, and they met out in the public square all together. This wasn't a privatized group of people who met solely in houses. Did they meet in houses? Yes. But they also met out in the public square in temple courts. I know I said two things. And then the, uh, this is my last thing, and you guys can, I want you to add more if you see them, but what is the, what's the thing that's mentioned twice? To my knowledge, there's only one thing that's mentioned twice. Breaking bread. There's something unique about sharing a meal that is hard to like quantify and replicate. So there is breaking of bread. Again, this is describing the church. It doesn't have to be prescriptive that we have to do all those things. But when I think about being witnesses and structuring our life together, 
that God in the Old Testament promised Israel that he would make them become this one day. And the whole point of them was to live their life around these obedience to God's laws and be close to God so the nations would come to know. It's interesting when they begin to structure their life together, they do the same things. And on the next slide, I have this statement. It says this, that the point of the church is to be a manifold witness of the life and the love of God. We're to be a witness to who God is. And if God is a community, as Father, Son, and Spirit, then it is impossible to witness to the life of God without displaying genuine love to others. What I'm getting at here is like, if we're going to be disciples who are together and witnessing together of the life of God, it demands that you have genuine love for brothers and sisters in Christ. And if this love in life within God could not be contained but overflowed to the creation of the world, that God in himself is this love and this life and this community, and all that love and this life overflowed to a creation... Would it not make sense that in the community, the love and the life of God would do the same thing? It would just necessarily overflow to the world. This is what it means, not in totality, but to a little degree of what it means to be witnesses together. So we are witnesses. We are witnesses together. And then finally this morning... We are witnesses together with each playing our parts. Each of us playing our part. Notice in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 again on the next slide, the point that we're really hammering home here is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the Holy Spirit has come upon us collectively, but he's come upon us individually as well. Bill Belichick, the famous New England Patriots coach, boo, right? Basically always tells his team, know your role and do your job. Now, we're going to say a little bit more excitingly, but know your role. Know your part to play in this drama. God is inviting you to participate in what he's doing in the world, and he's inviting you by uniquely giving you a role to play. In fact, on the next slide, I have this idea that in this story, in this drama, in this movie of God's mission, we see that God the Father is like the producer. Jesus is the main character. He's like the main actor. He's the, the star of the show. Not you, by the way. And the Spirit is the director. The Spirit is the one telling everyone where to go, what to do, when to come in, how to come in, empowering you actually to do that. And so each of us have been equipped by the Spirit to play our role within the story. And I want you to know you are not in the audience, you're on the stage. In the drama, yes, you're not the main character, you're not the producer, you're not the director, but you're on stage in God's play. You have a role to play. Each of us has been equipped by the Spirit to play your role in the story. You must jump on stage. Stop watching God's story. Get in it. Get involved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, some potentially familiar verses for all of us to remind us, but there, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this on the screen, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them, in everyone, it's the same God at work. And each one of these is given by the Spirit for the common good. Or 1 Peter chapter 4, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. So then all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know your role? 
When you jump up on stage in the drama of God's play, do you know what to do? Do you know what role, what act, what words, what services you should be doing? I started out by asking the question, what is God inviting you into? For some of you, he might be inviting you into a role that you know you should be playing, but you're not there. You're just in the audience. And he's saying, come on, jump on stage. Get in the drama. Get in the action. And some of you might be out in the audience thinking, I don't even know what role I want to play, but I want to get up here. Well, guess what? When you get up here, guess what you're going to figure out? Where you fit. You might get bumped all over the place. You might get bumped from nursery to elementary to nursery to elementary worker because that's where we need help. But I'm just kidding. But you might get bumped around while you're up here. But eventually, with God's people, with God's spirit, you're going to find where you fit and what role God is actually inviting you into. So what is discipleship? I made a statement, not a statement, I made a case last week that discipleship is nothing more than the transformation, the progressive transformation on the next slide, of my life story, of our life story, into the story of God by playing our spirit-given role. You want to grow in your discipleship? You need to jump from your story of being an American individualistic consumer into the story of God where you come to know your role and you play it. And to the degree that the story of God is the story that operates your life, and to the degree that you participate in that story will be the degree to which you are a mature disciple. So we do this at Redemption Church. We spend two weeks on this because this is what we want. We want people to jump out of the audience onto the stage to be in God's mission, God's drama, developing deep, meaningful relationships with God's people learning to love and forgive so the outside world sees a picture of what the new world's going to look like, and that is attractive. And we have that attractive place when each of us are playing our role. So if you have questions about what your role is, if you have questions about how to jump into God's story, go see Pastor Nate. <laughs> or, I didn't finish... Or talk to the person next to you. Or come find me. Because one thing I'm learning is like my role in God's story is never the same. My life is constantly changing. My life is constantly, you know, I have one kid with me right now. And I was like, this is a picture of what it's going to be like in two years. This is crazy. So please take a moment of just silence right here and fellowship and talk with the Spirit of God and ask Him to empower you to jump into the story of Jesus wherever that may be and ask Him what is the next step, what is the next thing He's inviting you into. And then I would encourage you when you're done with this gathering this morning in your home or to talk to your spouse, to talk to your kids, to talk to someone in your MC, to talk to a friend about what that is. And to begin to take steps to jump into God's story. Father, thank you for a few minutes. In many ways, just be reminded of things that we often forget. With the busyness of life and all the distractions and all the stories out there vying for our affections, we, I know I just need personally to be reminded of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And as we sang this morning, I'm just so thankful that we can actually declare glory, glory 
We have no other king. And we want that king to be made to look for what he really is, powerful and beautiful and attractive and joyful. And we want that king to be made known in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our workplaces, as we, by the power of the Spirit, witness together of what he has done on the cross for us and through his resurrection and bringing us a new world. So God, I just pray for Redemption Church that you will empower us to continue to jump and to learn and to know your story more. Help us to play our role in that story. God, if there's condemnation, I pray that we'd be reminded there is none. It's all forgiven. And God, if we're just taking this lightly and thinking there's other stories I'd rather live in, I pray that you'll help us to see the meaningfulness of God's story and the emptiness and the vanity and the futility of all the stories that we try to live out. And I pray that you'd protect us from the evil one. I pray that you'll help us to say no to those powers of sin, Satan, and death that are just so strong. And remind us that greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. And Father, I do pray that as you continue to cultivate deep, meaningful life here, that that meaningful life of love and light together would overflow and we would see people be transformed out of darkness into light to come to know who you are. So we pray that you help us be witnesses together. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.